ever been rescued almost from life? Uh, Max Walters is probably not a name you're really familiar with. Uh, many years ago, he traveled the globe and wrote about his many trips. And on one of his many trips, he was in the Swiss Alps when he was out on a beautiful day in the middle of January when the weather appeared to be perfect. He went for a bit of a hike and is not terribly uncommon in the mountains. The weather shifted almost instantly before he realized that he was in a blizzard and a complete whiteout conditions. He had no idea which direction the lodge was in and he began to wander. He fell, hit his head, and soon lay unconscious in the snow. The resort owner realized that things didn't seem quite right and so he gathered his best dog. And in a way that I don't even begin to understand, he sent the dog out, and sure enough, the dog went right to Max, found him, found him lying unconscious, and did as he was trained. He grabbed onto the, the coat of the young man and began to drag him. Suddenly, Max uh, stirred to awake, and in his mind, he was being attacked by wolves. And he grabbed his knife, and he began to swing, and soon finally landed a blow into the side of the dog. The dog yelped and ran back to his owner, where he collapsed and died. The owner, realizing what had happened, he followed the blood trail, found Max, and brought Max back to the lodge and gave him food, gave him heat, and eventually nursed him back to life at the cost of his favorite dog. My guess is if you're a dog owner, that story bothers you. A little. A dog giving his life for a stranger? Shedding its blood for somebody it didn't even know? But I fear that far too often when we come to the death of Jesus, we've heard this story thousands of times. So Jesus died in my place. What's the big deal? This morning, we're not going to go back to the book of Romans. It was my plan on my perfect schedule. We were going to take the month of January and talk about prayer and, and get back to Romans chapter 12 in February, but my schedule kind of got blown up, and, and I really do believe we are at an incredibly critical place in the history of our church. We have a new building. We're in search of another pastor. We've got many major decisions, and, and I'm convinced we will not make the right ones unless they are bathed in prayer. And so this morning, I, I would like to continue at least for a couple more weeks looking at prayer. If you were with us back in January, we began by going back to Psalm 33 in which David provides for us this beautiful picture of what a prayer of praise looks like. We then went to Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel provided an incredible description of what a prayer of confession looks like. This morning, I would like to go to perhaps my favorite prayer, at least in the epistles, if not in the entire New Testament, it is the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn there with me, the book of Ephesians, I think if I had to choose a book that's my favorite book in all of the Bible, I think I would choose Ephesians. I love the Apostle Paul, and Ephesians, to a large degree, is Romans condensed. It has many of the deep theological truths, and yet it is as practical as any of Paul's letters. But interestingly enough, it is a prayer, a book of prayer. 
In fact, at least on three different occasions, in chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6, Paul is going to break out in prayer. I'd love to look at the prayer in Psalm, in Ephesians 3, in which he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. Or we could go forward to chapter 6, that, that great conclusion to the letters. He talks about the full armor of God. And he says what we ultimately need is to pray at all times in all kinds of prayers. But for the few moments we have this morning, I would love to look at Ephesians chapter 1. I would love to look at the entire chapter. But I'm not sure you all want to stay with me all afternoon. Because Ephesians chapter 1 is really broken down into, into two major sections. The first section, Paul is just simply going to take 14 verses and Thank God for some of the most important gifts he's given us. And then in verse number 15, rather, he turns to this prayer and he prays for things. And it's interesting to me to notice what Paul does pray for. Because I don't think Paul's prayer is a lot like ours. Because if you remember, the book of Ephesians is what we call a prison epistle. Because Paul was in a jail cell in Rome waiting a trial before Caesar to find out if he got to keep his head or not. But no place does Paul ask to change his circumstances. He doesn't ask to be healed from any of his infirmities. He doesn't ask for his pocketbook to be well fed. In fact, many of the things that I think we spend much of our time praying for doesn't really enter Paul's idea. What he prays for is that, uh, that the people in Ephesus would be enlightened, that they would be strengthened in their understanding of their role in God. Now, please don't hear me to say you shouldn't pray for your health or your circumstances. The great prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that we're going to look at next week, Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So there obviously is a place to pray for our circumstances, and yet Paul doesn't even contemplate them. He contemplates the truly eternal truths. But he begins in the first several verses looking at this series of praises, and the first 14 verses is an interesting construction. It is the single longest sentence in the New Testament. Now, those who translate it put in a bunch of periods because, to be quite honest, I think if Paul had been graded, his teacher would have said, I'm sorry, that's a run-on sentence. But, but Paul becomes so consumed with praise, he just doesn't know where to stop. In fact, it's interesting, he uses the key phrase to the praise of his glorious grace three times. He uses it in verse number 6, he's going to use it again in verse number 12, and then he's going to use it again in verse 14. And what's fascinating to me is each of those three praises revolves around a, a thanksgiving to one of the members of the Godhead. In fact, I would suggest that Ephesians chapter one is one of the greatest Trinitarian documents Paul would ever write because he recognizes that the God we serve is three distinct persons who each have their own role in your salvation and yet they are one amazing being. He begins by praying to the Father. Then in verse number six, he's going to turn and pray to Jesus, and he's going to conclude with a prayer to the Holy Spirit. And that is the construction I'd like to look at this morning. But before we get there, I was tempted to spend the entire morning on just verse number three. 
We went through the book of Ephesians back in 2002, and if you can remember those sermons, I'm going to pat you on the back, because I, I don't remember, and I was the one who gave them. But we spent a total of four Sundays in the section I'm going to try and cover in a Sunday. And in verse number three, it's an incredible verse. He begins by saying, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. One of the struggles you have when a document is written in one language and you read it in another is the translators are are forced to figure out how to bring it into English. And sometimes they miss the hints. Because the word praised is exactly the same word as the word blessed. In fact, it really is what Paul is saying is, I bless you, God, because you blessed me. And if I go an even step further, the word blessed is a word that we usually use around funerals. It's actually the word eulogy. A couple weeks ago, I had the wonderful privilege of giving the eulogy at my father's funeral. What is a eulogy? It's a chance to say kind things about the one for who you are speaking. Paul says that I speak kindly of you, God, because you've already spoken kindly of me. It's almost 1 John where he says we love God because he first loved us. We praise God, we bless God, we eulogize God because he first blessed us with every spiritual blessing. One of the pastors I was listening to this week (laughs) tried an illustration that kind of hit home with me, and so I just want you to use your imagination for a second. Imagine that I had brought with me two 55-gallon drums this morning. The first 55-gallon drum is filled to the brink with $100 bills. Now, just because this is the way my mind worked, I had to figure out how much would that be. And if you go online, ask Google, somebody else has probably already asked the question. I didn't know this. I don't watch the show Breaking Bad. Maybe you have, but in Breaking Bad, there's a a show in which he transports dollars in 55-gallon drums, and so somebody had to do the math. And and if you do the math, depending on how tightly you pack the $100 bills, it's someplace between $15 and $17 million. So the one drum has $17 million in it. The other drum has every spiritual blessing. And I ask you to choose. Now, because we're in church, you're all going to say you're going to choose the spiritual blessings. (laughs) But isn't there a little temptation to think that money is the solution to all my problems? If I had $17 million, do you know what I could do with that? Die and find out which is more important. See, I I fear that we in our society are so caught up in the physical, in the material, that we oftentimes convince ourselves that what we need is just a few more dollars and life would be good. Paul says that God has given you every possible spiritual blessing. There's not a single one he's kept from you. And what's even better is they're kept and stored in heaven where they will never rust or go bad. Paul says that you have been given 
every spiritual blessing for a single reason. Because you are in Christ. We could spend the rest of the morning walking through the writing of the Apostle Paul because there is no phrase that more fills his writing than this incredible thought of being in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Several years ago, I, I was reading a book of a, a gentleman who traveled and, and spoke for a living, and it just so happened that that particular day, he was at, in Dallas, Texas, and he was going to be speaking at the church that Tony Evans pastors. I don't know if Tony Evans is a name you're familiar with. He pastors a huge church down in the Dallas area. And back in the 1990s, Tony Evans was the chaplain for the Dallas Mavericks. And this pastor arrived, and Tony said, hey, you look really wiped. How would you like to go to a basketball game this evening? And the pastor said, oh, okay, whatever. Can we get tickets? Tony says, not a problem. He picked up the phone, he called, and about 20 minutes later, a limousine pulled up. And as the limousine pulled up, a guy popped out of the, the limousine, ran to the door, and opened it and said, well, nice to see you again, Mr. Evans. And Tony said, He's with me. And the pastor got in the limo. They drove the limo right up to the very stadium, and there was a spot right in front of the stadium reserved for them. And they got out, and they got to go in the same door the players went in. And there was a guard there. And as he came to the door, the guard said, nice to see you again, Mr. Evans. And Tony said, he's with me. And they walked into the, the stadium, and they went to the elevator, and they went up to the third floor, and they got out on the third floor, and they were in the cafeteria for the team. And there was a guard standing there, and the guard said, nice to see you again, Mr. Evans. And he said, he's with me. And they went in, and they ate the best meal the pastor had ever eaten in his whole life. It was so incredible. And when they finished, Tony said, would you like to go to the game? And he said, well, I thought that's why we came. And so they got in the elevator again and went down to the very bottom, and they came out, and he didn't realize that they came out the very entrance, the team used and there were two guards there and they said nice to see you Mr. Evans and he said he's with me and we walked out and we didn't sit in the stands we sat on a chair on the very floor of the basketball court where I could reach out and touch the players because I was with him one day all of us will die and we will enter the very throne room of eternity. And there will be an angel there. The most fierce creature you have ever witnessed with your eyes. And the only hope of entrance is to say, I'm with him. Because of Jesus, I will have the privilege, you will have the privilege of entering the very throne room of heaven. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but because you are with Jesus. Paul could never get past the awe of the reality of being in Christ. Before we get to the prayer, I have to ask, are you in Christ? As we walk through the book of Romans, the book of Romans does an incredible job to lay out exactly the problem with humanity. And in a word, it's sin. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet in chapter four, Paul turns and he says to those who do not work, but believe in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 
And at the moment of faith, I am placed in Christ. And all the spiritual blessings the universe has to offer are mine. Let me just read Paul's prayer. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his son through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Uh, very quickly, let me just walk through a few of the amazing blessings that you have been given. And I wanna just kind of center them as Paul did around the different persons of the Godhead. He says, first of all, God chose you. Election is one of the most difficult doctrines theologians get a chance to struggle with. If you were here in the fall, we spent the majority of the fall working through Romans chapter 9 to Romans chapter 11. In some of the deepest, hardest passages Paul would ever write. And the truth is, election is difficult for us to understand because there is this sovereignty of God and human responsibility and how can God be absolutely sovereign and yet I still be responsible? Isn't it true that I have a free will and Paul's gonna say that, that anyone who confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he will be saved and Paul is going to argue that somehow in his infinite wisdom, his sovereignty doesn't trump our responsibility. And yet, I think the bigger issue with election is we tend to view history as ourselves being the primary player and God just having a bit role. That when things get too tough, I'll go to him. But let's face it, most of the time, he's just kind of off doing whatever God does, right? If you were here a couple weeks ago, we were in Daniel chapter 9, and Daniel chapter 9 is truly one of the great prayers in the Old Testament as Daniel falls on his face before his God and confesses his and his nation's sin and cries out to God to show mercy on them. But that's not what Daniel 9 is normally remembered for. In fact, one of the reasons I, I so enjoy the book of Daniel is because it views history from a completely different prism. It doesn't view history through man-centered eyes, but God-centered eyes. And Daniel has these two visions in chapter 2 and, and in chapter 7 in which he has the opportunity to lay out and to name the nations that will follow him. 
In fact, he does so with such clarity that many in the world today will argue that the book of Daniel can't really have been written when it was supposed to be unwritten because there's no way anybody could predict the future like that. Well, you can if you're sovereign. If you're the one who chooses, you can predict it. In fact, I would argue the whole book of Daniel is this wonderful reminder that God is, in fact, sovereign. And you can look through the history of humanity. And back in Daniel chapter 9, some 600 years before, 500 years before Rome would come into existence, he had already been prophesied. And God chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you... Your parent, your great-grandparent, your great-great-grandparent were even a glimpse in their great-great-grandparents' eyes. God chose. I, I, I recognize that that is something that we will struggle with, perhaps for eternity. And yet, election is one of the most amazing realities that God chose you. And don't miss what he says here. Not because you were holy and blameless. He chose you to be holy and blameless. Paul will speak more about election than almost any other author in the New Testament. And I'm convinced it's because Paul never left Acts chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9. In chapter 7, Stephen stands up and he gives this amazing sermon. And as he gives this amazing sermon, the, the Jews around him become enraged, so much so that they pick up stones and they stone, they execute Stephen. But do you remember who was standing watch, giving the okay for the execution of Stephen? It was none other than Paul, as he was known then, Saul. In fact, Saul made a part of his life going around the Roman Empire, arresting, torturing, and yes, if need be, killing Christians. I, I, I know that we tend to look at Paul post-Acts chapter 9, when on the road to Damascus, when he was headed to arrest, to torture, and yes, maybe kill more Christians, God miraculously saves him, and he is instantly transformed, and his life takes an entirely different direction. But I'm convinced the reason why Paul never got past election is he just couldn't believe God would choose someone like me like you, like Paul. I, I, I hope this morning that you don't rush too far, that you don't get caught up in too many weeds, that you get uh, sent on a tangent trying to figure out the whole sovereignty of God and the free will of man. I wanna challenge you just to pause and remember that God chose you. And then he predestined you. Now, sometimes we use election and predestination as interchangeable, but I, I really don't think they are. Election speaks of God's choice. Predestination speaks of God's plan. If I can just break it down into the natural form, it's a pre, meaning before, destiny. I don't know how often you fly, but I'm guessing the last time you flew, the next time you will fly, you predestined where you hope to land. 
Now, maybe you are into just going to the airport, getting on an airplane and saying, wherever it goes, I'm good with it. That's not the way I would like to do it. I would like to know exactly where I'm going. I want it to be predestined. God, in eternity past, put a plan in place to bring you here this morning. Nothing happened by accident. He has been orchestrating every event of your life to bring you exactly to where you are this morning. And one day he will bring you to be with him forever because he's putting in a play a plan to bring you into his presence forever if you are in Christ. My life often takes turns I wish it didn't. Last month, if I could have changed many things, I would have. My plans often fall apart. God's never does. He chose you, he predestined you to adopt you. Adoption was something that was common in the first century just as it is today, and it is an incredible privilege. Several years ago, I I had a chance to speak at Village Creek for a father-daughter retreat, and the gentleman leading the music was a guy that I had gotten to know pretty well. He, uh, He and I have been at Village Creek a number of times together. His wife is Native American from Alaska, and she was adopted. And at that retreat, they were the next day flying to Alaska because she was going to meet her natural-born siblings. What her natural-born siblings didn't realize, when her mother got pregnant, she left the village and traveled to Anchorage where she gave birth. And those in the hospital convinced her, you already have six kids at home, you can't care for them, please don't take this one home. And so she agreed to give them up for adoption, and then she went back to her family and said the child died. And that's all the siblings ever knew. But what really happened is she gave it up for adoption and an airman at the Air Force Base there in Anchorage was a foster parent and they were given the opportunity. The hospital called and said, we have a new baby. Would you be willing to take it for care? And they were excited to bring it in and instantly they fell in love with her and they began the process of moving from being foster parents to adopted parents. The process is not always smooth, it's not always easy, and there were many bumps and hurdles along the way, but two days before he was beginning transferred from Anchorage to Virginia Beach, he was informed that there was a form he had to fill out, but they couldn't get it to him, so he'd have to leave the baby behind in Alaska. It just so happened his wife worked at the the store on base and she was working when the colonel who was in charge of the base, his wife came in and she kind of dumped on her and the colonel's wife listened, didn't say anything. The next morning, the the airman was brought into the colonel's office. He said, I understand you have a problem. And the airman explained everything to him and he said, Let me see what I can do. He picked up the phone and he called the Anchorage Office of Adoption and he said, may I speak to the supervisor, please? They transferred him and they said, I've got an airman here who's trying to adopt and he can't work everything out. And he says, oh, I'm sorry. There's there's a form that he has to fill out and we don't have any of them here in Anchorage. The only place you can get them is in Juneau. I'd encourage you to go home this afternoon and look at a map of Alaska 
The only way you can get from Anchorage to Juneau is either by boat or by plane. It's hundreds of miles away. And the colonel said, no problem. I've got a pilot who needs some time. You tell the people there that I want the form, and they can meet him in an hour. He'll be at the state capitol. And he said, I forgot. There's one more place I can look. They eventually found out that the state received more money for foster kids than for adopted kids. And they were just stalling. But eventually, through the the colonel's influence, they got the paper, they got it filled out, and the day before they left, they were standing in front of a judge, and the judge implored them, you understand that you're not simply adding to your family. You are bringing this child to be on equal ground with your children. You must love it and care for it just as you would all of your kids. They did. And she grew up and, and eventually went back and met her natural-born siblings. But adoption is an incredible experience where someone who has no rights is brought in to a family. The lasting image of my father's funeral After the funeral, we had a lunch, and then my dad was laid to rest in his hometown of Pemberton, which is about 100 miles away from the church that the funeral was at. Mostly just family gathered. We sang a song. I I read some scriptures, said a few words, prayed. And the last person to speak was my brother. I have an adopted brother. And Solomon (laughs) said, this man adopted me from Brazil. He is the most like Jesus I have ever met. That's why his death is so hard. Brought from the horrors of Brazil, and I could tell you stories of the life he was living and the hopelessness that lay in front of him. But my dad took him into our family and made him my brother. Paul says that you and I have been brought into the very family of God. And can I share one interesting tidbit about Roman law? You could disown your own children. It was against the law to disown an adopted child. If you adopt this child, they're yours forever. Paul says that God adopted Very quickly, Paul moves then to what the son's part in it. He he says we have redemption. Redemption was this word that was commonly used in the first century. The Jews thought often of the Passover, and we don't really have time to go back to the whole plagues, but if you remember in Exodus, as God sends these 10 plagues upon the nation of of Egypt, and eventually the final plague is the worst of the 10 plagues in which God promises to slay the firstborn in every household, and, and throughout all All of Egypt, the firstborn in every household died. Even the Pharaoh's son died. But before the death angel came, 
God set up this entire system in which you would take a lamb, you would bring it into your house, you would live with it for a week, you would then slay it, and you would cover your doorposts of your house with the blood of the lamb, and then there would be this, this very important meal that you would all eat, and it would be a reminder of the suffering that you endured as slaves in Egypt. It would be an exciting reminder of the, the glory that was coming in the promised land, but the Passover was this amazing reminder that your sin cost a lamb its life. In a few moments, we're going to gather around another reminder. We in the Christian church don't remember Passover, but we do monthly gather around this amazing ceremony in which Jesus took the bread and took the fruit of the vine and he reminded the disciples that he was dying in their place. I fear for myself. Sometimes I come to the communion service too cavalierly, going through the actions. But it is an incredible reminder of the enormity of the cost of my redemption. That Jesus shed his blood for me and for you. It is my prayer as we gather around this ceremony that it might not just be something you do because it's the first Sunday of February, but that it might be a reminder to the enormity of the cost of your sin that Jesus paid to redeem you through his blood. And as a result, your sins are eternally forgiven. We're going to sing It Is Well With My Soul in just a second. And one of the reasons is because I love verse number three. Maybe some of my favorite words in all of Christian hymns. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins not in part, but the whole. Are nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Jesus died not just for the sins you have committed, but for all of them you will commit. There is not a too grievous sin that can keep you from his grace, and there is not a future sin that can somehow deny God's grace. All of them have been paid for by Jesus. He forgave us. And then he revealed his will to us. The word mystery is, is one that I think throws us for a loop because we tend to use mystery as the idea of something that's hidden and you have to find the proper clues, the evidence to solve the mystery. But in the New Testament, a mystery is something that is impossible to know until it's been revealed to you. And Paul is going to use that word often as we enter this new era in which God reveals all kinds of things that those in the Old Testament had no clue about. And God has written what his will is for you now that you have been redeemed and forgiven. How should I live? You don't have to wonder. That's what God's word is for. He has written for us his very will. 
I realize most of us want exact wills. What am I supposed to have for lunch this afternoon? That's not where God is at. In fact, numerous times as you go through the New Testament, Paul is going to make the case, this is God's will for you because there are very specific things that he calls us to and he hasn't hidden it any longer. He's revealed it. Finally, he says that we are then sealed by the Holy Spirit. If I can lay it this way, I didn't do this intentionally. I would love to say I planned this. I really didn't. If you add up those words there, you will find that there are seven gifts you've been given in Ephesians chapter one. Can I challenge you to do something? Would you purpose to begin each day this week praising God for one of those seven? Tomorrow, would you focus your day on the incredible reality that you have been chosen by God? Tuesday, remind yourself numerous times to praise God that he is orchestrating his entire plan to get you to exactly where he wants you to be, that Wednesday, you were adopted. Thursday, you were redeemed. Friday, you are forgiven. Saturday, God has given you his will. And next Sunday, as you prepare to come back to worship with us, to be reminded that God has placed his spirit in you to guarantee your inheritance for eternity. We have much to give great grace and thanks for. I want to challenge you. I, I, I think the solution to so many of our problems is to pause and give thanks for the things that we have already. Father, I, I thank you for the chance this morning to go to Ephesians chapter one. And God, I know that there's so much more that could and should be said. But it is my prayer that you might take something this morning and challenge each of us. For it is in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.